Hello and uh, welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. Uh, he is the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business uh, Review, ZDNet, and many publications. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. <laughs> thanks for the book. Always cracks me up. Bala is one of the top followers. People follow for CIOs, CEOs, CMOs across the world. He's got his own book. He's on TV a lot. And more importantly, he's one of the most interesting people to follow, to learn from, and of course, to be inspired, especially in these times. But it's really not about us. This show is more about our guests, what they're here to share, and more importantly, how they share it, how their leadership, what they've been doing, and of course, really how they're inspiring others. So who do we have first as a guest today, Vala? And you talk about someone who millions of people follow, and it's our privilege to have Brian Solis, Global Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce for our first guest. Uh, Brian is an eight-time, eight-time uh, best-selling author, international keynote speaker, and a digital anthropologist. His latest book, Life Scale, Life Scale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life is a must-read. It's on the top of my bookshelf every week. Uh, Forbes called Brian one of the more creative and brilliant business minds of our time. <laughs> uh, in his work at Salesforce, he humanizes emerging and disruptive trends to help leaders see new and more meaningful possibilities for digital transformation and innovation. He's a mentor and a friend. I go to him when I need to better understand complex topics. He's a must follow on Twitter at Brian Solis, B-R-I-A-N-S-O-L-I-S. Welcome back to Disrupt TV, Brian. Oh man, it's so good. It's so good to be here and in my new role. Uh, and I can't, I can't tell you how happy I am. So, uh, and I'm proud to call you both uh, friends and mentors as well. I learned so much from both of you. Wow. So, Thank you, so you, much. you surprised all of us when you joined Salesforce. Not that Salesforce is, is, is not the place to be, uh, but we were surprised because you've been out there talking about innovation, talking about what's next. You've gone through your personal journeys. You've shared that with everybody, and now you're at Salesforce. What's the 90 days been like, and what have you learned, especially given the fact that you joined right before the pandemic? <laughs> Man, uh, yeah. So, it. I'll tell you, it, it seems both fast and then also, if you had told me it had been 365 days from now, I would believe you. Uh, it's, been, it's been an amazing journey. Well, you know, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I have not been this creatively on fire in a really long time. Uh, I've, I'm just bursting with ideas. I'm inspired by everybody that I'm working with. Every time I have another meeting, I'm learning something new. And so just constant mind-blowing uh, and just so, so proud to be part of this Ohana. Uh, and you know, some of the things that I've learned uh, is, is, you know, my definition of what might have been possible before and what possibilities can look like now are, are, are night and day. I can, uh, I just see so many new different, different possibilities, talking to so many customers, talking to so many smart people that I work with uh, are, are really showing, especially in a post, well, in a, in a with COVID world, uh, that innovation has never been more important than it is now. And I feel like I can have an impact on that, at least in some way, shape or form to help businesses, not just survive, not just ensure business continuity, uh, not just stabilize, but actually take this as a control alt delete moment to be greater than ever before. Wow, so you're yeah, and, you know, I have the privilege of seeing it Oh yeah, go ahead, Paula. Sorry yeah, about that. You're seeing this. So, so, yeah, and I, I, I just I wanted to say is I, I have the privilege of seeing Brian's work on the inside and on the outside now, which is which is awesome. Uh, you know, we've got 52,000 people at Salesforce who are gravitating towards his thinking, 
want to collaborate with him. So I see all of the internal communications and, of course, the external manifestation from articles to keynotes to webinars. Um, you know, and this is a company that took has always taken pride in being an innovator, being a trailblazer, and you've had external recognition in terms of our innovative thinking, uh, being first to market on several dimensions. And now you have this awesome title, a global innovation evangelist, working for what Forbes called the most innovative company of the last decade. So there's a lot of pressure there because you know uh, you you in many ways now represent what people want to know about the future of Salesforce. Why is innovation so important right now, given the seismic event that's a first time in a lifetime event that three of us and everyone that we know is experiencing right now? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it's not a title that I take lightly. Uh, when I first heard the title, I'll be completely honest with you, my, I, I grinned from ear to ear uh, and felt so, it, it, you know, it, I, I just felt so proud uh, that you, know, you spend your whole career pushing boulders up hills and talking about what's possible and being denied a lot of times as just being sort of a dreamer. And it, 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 was, just, it was just validating uh, in many ways. And I think that's one of the reasons what just unlocked a lot of this creativity and inspiration is that I, I am, I am this, this person at, at such an innovative company at such an incredible time. And so I want to, I want to do great things. And so what, you know, what that means is, you know, we take a step back and let's, let's, let's kind of look at the nuance of what innovation itself means. Because I think what I've, I've learned over the years is that a lot of times when organizations think about innovation, they naturally equate it to technology and technology adoption. So for example, uh, automation right now is one of the fastest growing technologies within the enterprise. But I don't know that it's necessarily being employed in innovative ways. I would say that in many cases it's being employed in iterative ways and it's still important, but because it's new to an organization, an organization sees it as innovative, but when you look at it from the outside in, it's actually iterative. And the differences and the nuances are important because I believe both are necessary on parallel tracks moving forward. Iteration, for example, is taking new technologies and employing them in ways that improve existing processes make it more efficient, scalable, uh, and that also contributes to resilience. But when you look at innovation specifically, it is using new technologies to unlock new value. And in this time, uh, it is so important to look at, for example, uh, digital business model innovation that you know we have a customer that is overnight much more digital than ever before. And with that comes in a whole new set of expectations, preferences, beliefs, norms, and organizations have to iterate in order to scale and meet that demand, but also look at this and say, hmm, how is the customer changing? And what new value can we introduce to them technologically, but also products and services and even brand? Absolutely. Yeah, I know it's a great point. And, and when you talk about this, right, innovation comes in different ways. You have incremental innovation, right? So people try to make things faster, better, cheaper. You have transformational innovation where you're going out, blowing out new business models. And then you're going out the other way where you're completely throwing out the book and starting something brand new. Uh, what are you seeing more of today? Um, and, and you kind of hinted a little bit on, you know, there's innovation happening at all different levels. Uh, but why are, you seeing, why are you seeing it happening? And more importantly, what are you seeing? Well, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of you know, soul searching, which was uh, I think uh, sort of missing quite a bit. In fact, one of the things that I think was missing quite a bit in in organizations to this point uh, was just social science in general, which sort of understanding from you know, whether it's anthropology, sociology, psychology, uh, all of these all of these things are probably more important than they've ever been before. So. I'm seeing a lot of reflection as to, you know, obviously we've got to fix what's broken. We have to support things that we didn't know were going to be so critical overnight. Uh, and this is sort of the, the reaction or what I call the survive phase of the novel economy. Um, but then there's this, this other opportunity as well to say, let's give, let's give this sense of innovation a purpose. Right. Uh, maybe maybe we can maybe we could put a, a human face, a human name and a, a human set of of behaviors behind this. For example, the digital customer or, or the customer in general. Uh, and we can focus on the journey and see what's broken there. What isn't meeting their sort of expectations? 
what might push them away and fix those, right? So iteration. And then look at what else are, where else are they going? What are the journeys and the experiences that they love so much? I don't care if it's B2C, B2B, whatever it is. And let's take those nuances. Let's take those inputs. Let's take those insights and look where we could sprinkle some magic around the journey as well. So that way everything becomes a project, a measurable project, something that at, at a time where investments are going to be heavily scrutinized by the CFO, that we can see some time to value quickly because one, it delivers immediate ROI, but two, it delivers longer term ROI because we all know the value of, of a happy, loyal customer. Right, right, absolutely. You, you, you used uh, a phrase, uh, novel economy. So I want a, 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 a better definition of what you mean when you say novel economy. I also, in the context of defining novel economy, um, uh, we know that the customer experience has uh, more layers of uh, decision making. Is, is, is it a necessity in terms of investing my or spending my discretionary income? Is it safe? And is it accessible? Um, like I want to go to the movies today, but that's not an accessible option for me. Uh, and, and where there are stores that are open, I'm thinking about is this relevant and is it safe? So you wrote a fast company post that said every company needs to be a digital health company addressing that safety uh, concern that will be top of mind for many consumers uh, and, and buyers for many, many months to come. So describe the novel economy and also can you expand on what it means to be a digital health company and why is it important? Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, as you were saying that, I thought, you know, I wrote that article. And then I saw that video going around about Las Vegas reopening and how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly, yeah, some businesses are idea. completely ignoring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the novel economy, uh, Invala, thank you for, you know, you've been actually very, more so than you realize, very inspiring in my work at Salesforce from even before I started. Uh, the novel economy is something that, I felt like, one, it was a big title to fill, but also it's, it's the team that, that we sit on is also incredible. Just people that are, that are around us are amazing. And I looked, at all, I looked at my body of work coming in into Salesforce, and I thought, you know, a lot of this about innovation, a lot of the, about disruption, this is all so true. But, you know, through the lens of a global pandemic at a time where not just consumers or customers are, are disrupted where we as human beings all feel a sense of fear and anxiety and stress you know there what could what could i do to influence and help people differently and the first thing that struck me was that we we looked at this as the new normal and we described a, a moment of great disruption a profound emotional just impact, it, calling it the new normal didn't, didn't help inspire me to what I needed to do next. And so I thought about, you know, what, what about these times really, really matter? And what do we need to do to move forward in a productive direction, not just a reactive direction? And it hit me that the, the novel coronavirus had so many, sim, so many you know, parallels with, with, business and markets and life in general, because novel itself means new and unusual. And when we talk mm -hmm. about it in the form of a virus, it means that there's no playbook, there's no treatment, there's no, uh, there's no vaccine, uh, and there's very little to base our next steps on. So we're sort of learning as we go. And the same is true for when, when we were hit with COVID-19, there was no playbook. There was no best practice or case studies to follow. There's no business vaccine. So the novel economy then was a name that I could give this moment, break it out into three phases, so survive, alive, and thrive, and then plan from a strategic you know, scenario planning what do we need to think about in a variety of contexts moving forward, now, six months, 12 months, 18, 24, 36. Because this virus is going to be with us for at least 18 months. And Ray, you're probably going to know better than, than me on that front. But I, I, even if there were a vaccine today and everybody got the shot, it would take a while to establish that herd immunity that we need to feel safe, to feel 
feel comfortable going back out and 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 moving around the way we used to, unless you're in Las Vegas. Uh, so, <laughs> the, the idea for the novel economy then was to help structure uh, our investments and our next steps with in an era with COVID. Terrific. Terrific. Oh, and then the digital health company thing. Sorry, uh, if, uh, I'll I'll be real quick. That idea was, you know, if we we have to be safe. It, it's also interestingly. Um, it was inspired by our, our, I don't want to be too commercial, but at Salesforce, we, we rolled out an initiative called work.com and it's helping companies get back to work and to reopen their businesses. And I, 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 I was so inspired by those ideas. I thought, well, what does that, what does that look like? Not just for employees, but also for customers. And it, it, it made me play out uh, spatial design, right? So if we have to think about, you know, how does the, how does the employee and a customer interact? How do we reimagine retail space so that it's safer, but also so it's not post-apocalyptic or very Mad Max, that, it's, that it feels really cool. Like, okay, I'm going to roll with this. How do we rethink all of this to be positive and memorable and, and just new in a really great way uh, so, and healthy and safe, too? Right, right. That's great. No, these are these are great points, right? And when we think about what's next and what's happening, one of the hottest areas is artificial intelligence. And along with artificial intelligence comes a lot of ethical issues, comes a lot of things that are required to help bring humans and machines closer together. Uh, so, so the question posed here is really, does every company need a AI futurist or a chief AI officer, just like the way we talked about digital or the way we talked about innovation? It's another one of the ideas inspired by the stuff that we're doing here. Uh, so the Einstein team released some really incredible research. And look, I'm not going to pretend that I'm smart enough to understand uh, everything that they were working on. But they, they released a, a research paper that introduced the concept of an AI economist. And the role of the AI economist was sort of in a game format to te teach AI how to simulate a microeconomy in a way that could introduce fairer and more equal tax policies to citizens. And in their research, uh, in comparison to other economic models that are widely adopted and used, they were able to introduce uh, more equal and fair uh, taxation policies, uh, at least in, in, in this demonstration. And so it got me thinking, in a novel economy, and I make the argument, you know, you, People could disagree, but I, I make the argument that as of March 1st, that's really when the meter starts. We could take all the data pre-March and just kind of set it aside. Hmm. And we could look at how, and Val, I know you and I have talked about this. You, you could watch how people's shopping behavior is changed and continues to change in real time. In our global shopping index, we showed the last 15 days of, of March just had a 41%. Uh, adoption rate of digital shopping, which was huge. Uh, and so you can, you know that this is going to play out differently. So the idea was, could we build an AI futurist at the C-suite to take this data that's spilling out after March 1st and continuing to change as behaviors change in real time to help identify patterns that could in, instruct or, or give insights to essentially an executive team that does not have experience navigating a global pandemic and help guide their strategies from a business standpoint, from an internal standpoint, to be more competitive right now and in real time. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, Andrew Nag, who's the Baidu chief uh, AI officer and founder of Coursera for years, has talked about the importance of having someone in that leadership position. Obviously, at my company, our company, we have Richard Socher. And Dr. Socher teaches at Stanford. He's probably top 10 NLP experts in the world. So we have somebody guiding our 500 plus data scientists to figure out how to make our applications smarter and better. So I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, I, I, to, to me, I view machine learning and AI technologies as, as electricity for the 21st century. So you do need some, someone who really can. And, and Ray really touched the most important part of it is the ethical use of AI. And we have an ethical officer who works hand in glove with Richard uh paula goldman and richard social so you know it, it, it's going to challenge companies and you saw what the announcements with facebook and microsoft ibm in terms of facial recognition software suspension uh, uh or, or delays using the technology because given the race crisis we have now technology companies realize that you know some of the technology may not be used for 
you know, may not be used for betterment of society. So until we can identify those biases, you know, algorithms are just our beliefs codified. So if you've got 10 white guys writing code for AI, we're going to miss out on a lot of, uh, we're going to have lots of black blind spots. Uh, so my question, my, and this will be my last question, you know, uh, changing world, novel, we're all trying to go after solving unsolved problems. So by definition, no experts or experience in the past can guide us. We have to have a beginner's mindset. We have to be adaptable. We have to be curious. We have to be humble. Uh, where do you go to stay, um, you know, on the, on the leading edge of innovation? Not best practice. Things move too fast to even call it best practice. Considered practice. Uh, obviously, you and I work with some of the smartest customers in the world, so we have that privilege. But how do you how do you stay teachable? And give us advice to the folks that are watching. Who, who need to recognize that being teachable is the most important skill of uh, you know, the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, there's a couple of things. Uh, one uh, is I've made an intentional effort to spend time with our team uh, and our customers so that I could hear directly from them their business challenges uh, and their struggles. Uh, and also just, just to hear firsthand how how to possibly help them. Hmm. I take it one step further, and this is the digital anthropologist in me, is looking at their customers, right? So our customers, yeah, customers yeah, 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 uh, and spending time looking at, at their challenges, their aspirations, uh, and, and kind of reverse engineering it back to them. Uh, that, that, I, uh, that is that's so profound right now. I'm, I'm spending all, I wish I had more time to spend on those fronts and also do everything else because I'm learning a lot. Uh, the other, the other thing is that I, I hope this doesn't sound weird, but I, I am spending time reading like Ralph Steadman book, uh, you know, looking playing vinyl, like <laughs> uh, I'm trying to kind of get the more analog touch points to uh, re to reset my um, just my center of reference, mm. uh, let some art culture, creativity, sort of inspire mm -hmm. uh, how I see things differently, because we all, as you said earlier, uh, Bala, you're human, you're biased. Uh, and so if you can kind of open your mind and open your heart, uh, you can see things mm -hmm. uh, hopefully differently and, and, and more empathetically. Hey, thanks sure. a lot, Brian. We are here with Brian Solis, Global Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. And of course, his Twitter handle is Brian, S-O-L-I-S, -L one of the early South by Southwest Twitter social media adopters, innovation individual, and of course, walking us through Life Scale, an awesome book. If you haven't read it, definitely take a look at that. And of course, thanks a lot for being on the show, Brian, and I will see you maybe somewhere next week. So. Yes, <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thank you, friend. Uh, what an extraordinary person, you know, um, for whatever reason, Ray, you and I gravitate towards people that are not just smart, smart isn't good enough for us, they have to be smart and kind, and that describes our last guest and certainly our next guest. Uh, it's a privilege for Ray and I to have Matthew Halliday, co-founder and senior vice president of product strategy at Incorda as our next guest. Uh, uh, Matthew is a data analytics expert and enterprise product leader with over 20 years of experience developing products and taking the market. So it's, it's from user experience to, uh, to the, putting the science and art into delivering a beautiful product to market. Ma Matthew co-founded in quarter in 2013 and he served in several roles across the company. He's an artist at heart. Anybody who knows Matthew can, can agree with that. He's drawn to technology in much the same way he's drawn to music and design with a passion and vision that he brings to his work every day. You can see that in his social feed as well. I mean, you know, he's, he's a soulful individual. Matthew frequently writes about data, leadership, product design, and presentation techniques. On his blog, I definitely want you to check his blog, layeredelay.com, layeredelay.com. And you can follow him on Twitter with similar handle, layeredelay, L-A-Y-E-R-E-D, D-E-L-A-Y. Welcome, Matthew, to Bishop TV. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. I can't, it's a little surreal because uh, I tune in every week. I put it in my calendar. I get to watch it from the other side, and now I get to see the magic from the other side. So it's awesome. Thanks for having me. 
Awesome. Thanks for your kind words. Thank you. Thank and you. yeah, what is with the Thai showdown, Vala? I think we're getting outshone. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a car and he's in like, look at the beautiful background and that sound, the voice sounds amazing. So, so but hey, Matt, Matthew, I, I, I'm going to ask you about the most important question here. Oh, go ahead. Hey, you're going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's very rare that you can outdress Brian Solis. And so when I saw that he had just a tie on, I'm like, this is my moment. This is it. I'm going to do it. And I'm even and you the top it, my friend. It's at the moment. I ditched the quarter t-shirt. I got rid of my stay at home hat with my crazy hair. Um, sorry for all of you actually have hair. This is, this is our moment to shine. All the bald guys are like, we're loving it. So definitely uh, having fun. That is awesome. Well, well, hey, we've been on each other for a long time. We worked together as co-workers uh, back in the past. Uh, and, and I really want to get the inside story. Like, we've never really got the end story. What's it like co-founding a company that no venture capital firm believed in? They were all against it. When I remember, I remember Osama telling a story. I remember you telling a story. And it'd be nice for people to understand what was going on at that point in time. Like, what was it that just they, they didn't get? Because lots of customers get it. Yeah, so it, it was, you know, you hear these stories, right? People go with uh, a PowerPoint presentation, they go to a VC, and then within the same day, they walk out with, you know, a few million dollars in a check. And so we, we went out, we actually had a lot more than that. We actually went to VCs, went up and down Sand Hill Road, and we had actually a demoable product. We actually could show something. It wasn't just vaporware. It wasn't like, hey, we have an idea. Do you want to get behind it? And one of the things, the feedback that we got was just, just disbelief. It was just straight out. Do you really expect us to believe that you're going to do what all these other giants have not been able to do? Uh, are you going to be able to, you know, beat them at their own game? Like they've got so much money, so much resources. Um, but at the same time, they would say, keep talking to us because we like the team. They, they said, we really believe in the team itself, mm. but they couldn't quite get it. They couldn't quite understand. And so we just thought, well, all right, let's, um, let's just prove it. And so we went out and really our customers became our first investors. And so we went out and we um, started working with customers. And very, very early on, our first customer was Broadcom. And uh, they believed in us. And we gave them a demo. We showed them. And we did in a day what they thought was going to take six months. And so when they saw that, they were like, we're in. And they knew the product wasn't finished. It wasn't done. But they said, you know, they've, they've picked winning products all along. They were the first company to go onto the Google suite uh, for the enterprise. Um, they've, they've backed a lot of things like uh, Box.com and stuff like that. And so they've done a really good job of finding winning technologies and they kind of pride themselves on that. And so they, they invested in us, if you like, in one way, and uh, we started building it. And we started building it in a way that was very frugal. Uh, we didn't go out and just blow money. We, we didn't have an office. We worked out of uh, the Bay Club in Redwood Shores. We would go there and just kind of work there. Um, we closed uh, our third customer, which was a huge you know, top 10 consumer electronics company, massive, used their products all the time, loved their products. And we closed that deal uh, actually out of a Starbucks. We didn't have an office. And I was just worried that the procurement person was going to say, let me come and visit you. And I'd be like, please don't. Like, no, um, I'll come to you. That's fine. Uh, so once that happened, though, once you start to have a really, you know, Fortune 1000 companies that are really just betting on what you're doing and saying, this is transformative, this is different, this is game changing, then the VCs all started to turn around. And it was Google Ventures that actually that came in first. And they said, Wow. We really want to look at this. This is this is really interesting at that point. But that was, you know, we'd been going at it for over a year at that point. And wow. uh, we had had uh, one investor. So you remember, you know, Ron Wall, who is the EVP from Oracle. Yeah. He was actually my first EVP when I started out coding. And, um, you know, he believed in the team. And he said, I believe that you can do this. So he kind of bootstrapped it for us. And we, we got it to a place where we actually started getting real revenues. And then we started to be able to, um, you know, get these customer stories, which really then push things forward. And that's always been in quarter's way. Uh, we haven't gone out just looking for big amounts of money. Uh, we've really gone out what, what makes sense and what we try to achieve, but we've really wanted it to be about our customers and our customers' success. And so we've been really um, you know, aggressive in making sure that our customers are always successful. And so our, our retention rates are fantastic. I'm super proud of that, of what the team's been able to do. And just and, and you just raised as well. You guys just raised 30 million in August. Uh, so congratulations so as well. So yeah, that's yeah, a big so, raise. That's amazing, congratulations. Well, you were in good company because the last tech crunch in New York uh, show that I watched, there was a guy on stage who went to Sandy Hill Road 
pitched to dozens of VCs. None of them thought his company was interesting. And it was Mark Benioff and right. Salesforce. So, so, so uh, there's a lesson to be learned there in terms of. I, I, had, I, I had one VC say, can't we just do this in Excel? Yeah. And, um, I was like, not sure how this is going to go, but it's, it's been, well, it's been a wild ride. And then we've had, you know, some great investors have joined in since then with you know, um, Microsoft, which is rare to get Google and Microsoft investing in a company. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, um, Kleiner Perkins and also Sorensen Capital as well and some others. That's terrific. That's terrific. Well, so, so you, you talked about, you know, having that entrepreneur, you know, mindset, grit, persistence, optimism. You just, you know, you wrote a, a, a post in Information Week and you said analytics without behavior change is just expensive artwork. And you said IT leaders should keep in mind that good data analytics design starts with understanding how data is being used within their enterprise organization. Can you talk a little bit about the necessary behavior change you need in order to get the most out of data and, and insights? Yeah, definitely. I think what it is, I think people end up building analytics. They build out these dashboards. They build the things that they think they should be doing, but they have no idea. Does it actually make any change? Like, is the business making smarter decisions? Can we pinpoint this to anything? And I kind of think it's akin to like accountants having their worst finances at home or lawyers <laughs> not having their own wills set out, right? And when it comes to their own material, it's that, you know, their own stuff that they're building is like, so did that report you build, does it get used? And one right. of the customers I went to, they had 17,000 reports in their organization. And they said, we're looking for a solution that can move these 17,000 analytical reports. I'm like, 17,000? Wow. How many are run on a wow. monthly basis? How many run on a daily basis? And, and nobody knew. And then you, can, you, know, you take these things forward, but people are going to make technology decisions and strategic decisions based upon not knowing. And I'm like, well, we need to fix that. You need to know what people use. And does it actually make a difference? And so you can do A-B testing. You know, we do this in products, but... I think analytics professionals need to think about themselves as being product owners, not just using a tool set. They're a product owner that owns an experience and they need to figure out what works, what doesn't. And it goes through just curation of data because at the end of the day, you know, if you just get one piece of data and you don't have the context of that data, yeah. it's just like taking words out of context. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, it's just vanity metrics and it really doesn't tell you, a, a, you know, something you can make, take action on and have a, yeah. a really good interaction with. I want people to read your article, but three important questions. How many reports have you generated in the last year? How many are run weekly, monthly, or quarterly? And which teams or individuals are generating most reports? I think those, there's more questions in the blog, but those three are just common sense. you know. And as a former CMO, CCO, I was presented with thousands of reports. And I had the same, I'm just not smart enough to consume all those reports. So I need like, you know, prioritize. <laughs> Very specific and relevant and timely reporting. So great article. Yeah, it's, it, it makes perfect sense. Go ahead, Ray. No, I think those are great questions. Uh, you know, and you know, I think there's another one that I think that's coming here from the audience, uh, which is really talking about what you guys built, right? I mean, you know, you're, you're alluding to it, and you know, people are asking, like, "Hey, can I do this in Excel? Can I do this somewhere else?" I mean, you're talking about next generation databases. They operate differently. They're solving different types of problems. They're different types of performance requirements. I mean, I can't disclose, and since I'm under NDA as well, um, what are the top companies that you're working with? But these are some of the largest companies solving some of the gnarliest data problems. Talk about why these databases are important. Yeah, so it's it's the whole thing, right? This, uh, at the end of the day, we, we had relational databases and they're great for transactions coming in, individual transactions. They're not great at when you want to be able to uh, bring in analytics. And so the first step that we did is we moved to columnar structures, right? Store the data in a columnar structure. Then we went to in-memory and then people started leveraging those. Uh, then we moved to this point where people would say, okay, let's, uh, let's do elastic scale and let's throw elasticity at the problem, uh, which takes you so far. But... What we need to be able to do is to be able to say, well, what's the shape of the data that it resides in currently today? And how can I use that without having to transform and change it? Because the moment I have to transform and change data just to ask an analytical question, all of a sudden that means I'm unable to be flexible. I'm, I'm going through expensive data pipelines. I'm spending all my time doing that work. And right out of the gate, that means I do not have flexibility. I don't have self-service. I'm not able to just say, hey, what's going on in the data? Let's go and take a look. Everything is a protracted, drawn-out process. So what I encoded that we did is said, well, let's take a, a holistic view at the whole process from, mm -hmm. from data ingestion. Can we get data from Salesforce? Can we get data from um, Oracle, ERP, and SAP? 
bring that data into a platform and be able to do it in a few clicks. I shouldn't have to sit down and code. These are not value-add tasks, just getting data out of a system. Why am I having to code? Um, save that for doing things that actually enrich the data, that bring more value to the data, that give the business something to do with it. And so once you have that data in and you have these next generation query engines, um, and what we designed it in quarter, we have our own IP that enables us to be able to run queries against 50, 60 table joins, which is what you kind of need, actually, if you look at the ERP yes. system itself. It's not made into a nice star schema for you to operate on. It's in a, you know, a sprawling mess, 55,000 tables in Oracle EBS. Um, and it's the same in all these applications. If you can take that, though, and run queries with billions of records and get sub-second responses, that really changes the wow. approach and how you will tackle data and how you even how the business looks at data. Yeah, so a great, great innovation, great new design principles. Uh, I'm going to go back to our previous guests talking about novel economy, unsolved new problems, um, and 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 you you this week talked about your business metrics going haywire. You said you can't wait for the world to go back to normal. Uh, or expect your old metrics uh, to work in the future. Uh, you said you have to listen intently, you have to experiment relentlessly and uh, spread your bets. And you mentioned Domino's Pizza as an example company that, that has gone through digital transformation, constantly swinging for the fences and, and radical new ideas. When we are in this novel, econ novel economy, as Solis mentioned, and you have to think about new ways, new metrics, new processes. Can you talk about, can you guide entrepreneurs uh, who are looking to perhaps revamp their analytics so that they can remove certain blind spots they have because we are in a novel economy and there are things that are gonna be vastly different, which means you need to have a different set of success criteria. Yeah, I think uh, there's, there's so many things we could talk about in that, um, but what, one of the things that I think is, has been happening is people over maybe 10 or 15 years built out a, a set of KPIs and they're running their business based on those KPIs. So now they're all kind of not working. They're all going, they're showing, they're all going red. Everything's not looking good. I mean, like, how do I, how do I resolve this? The problem is, is that often people are in love with the technologies and not in love with the problem. I think um, <laughs> Richie said this at uh, Constellation uh, Connected Enterprise last year. It's like, you got to fall out of love yeah, with the solution and fall in love with the problem and then amplify the customer empathy. And that needs to happen throughout the whole organization when it's like, okay, well, what's the business trying to do? How do we serve the business? You need to think like a business person. I would love for a day when IT people wouldn't list the technologies that they're proficient in and just be looking for, I need to add another one to my resume to be more desirable. But they'll be saying, these are the business problems that I solve. I'm able to use technology to drive this business outcome. When they start thinking that way, you start to look at the, the problems differently versus here's the technology. Or what, what else do I need to bring in? And we get so much into this hobbyist mindset that we're really just love to tinker and play. It was like my brother loved building computers and he just loved dealing with jumper settings and drivers. And I'm like, screw that. I want to do something with a computer. I want to make music. And so I'm like, I'm going to get a Mac. You can go and do what you want to do. And, and then it's like, it's, there's a bit of an element of that going on where we need organizations to just say like, we need to get access to data. Business needs to ask questions and they need to move fast. And, and they can't wait weeks. It needs to be days or hours. And it needs to be the point that Someone else can challenge it. I, I feel like there's so much data abuse that somebody, the first person to get a chart up can claim it and says, the data says, look, the data says we should do this. And you'd be like, I don't know. But it's so hard to get it, to challenge it that you don't. So no one challenges data. And then you end up in the situation where um, because you can't challenge the data, it doesn't get better and it doesn't get richer and it doesn't get more context aware. And that's where really self-service needs to go. It's not about the visualization or the colors, or can I change it from a trellis to a tree map or to whatever kind of visualization you want. It's about, can I serve the data and get access to the data in a way that serves the business outcomes? And can I measure those? And that's what I need to be thinking about. And that's really what self-service needs to get to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one, one final comment is that, you know, um, all three of us are working hard to become better storytellers. Um, and I think it was Brené Brown who said, you know, stories are data with a soul. Uh, and I'll give you an example. My son heard, you know, 40 million plus people out of work. And he's asking me, what does that mean, Dad, 40 million? It's a big number. 
I'm like, what it means is we now know family member, friends, and, and former colleagues who are, who are without a job as a result of the pandemic. The number is so big that every one of us now knows somebody. Uh, and, and that resonated. So I, I appreciate the fact that you write and you express your beliefs and guiding principles in stories that don't just rely on data, but use data to support your thesis. Um, and I think that's super important. Data alone may not allow you to convince others and create a movement or change. You need to have stories supported by data. Yeah, I feel like it's yeah. with, with data, you can, the danger is you, you develop in an ivory tower and it's a way to, to take you away from the very people you need to serve and you lose empathy, you don't understand and you still have to do the hard work. I believe that data is useful, but I don't think it's useful when you actually do the hard work of understanding cultures, understanding people. And, you know, there's probably people who are here that say, oh, I don't know anyone who's been left, who's been let go. I don't know anyone's out of work. And that's part of the problem because some people are living in such a bubble that they think the world looks like this. And so, for example, like when we do UX labs, we look for people who don't live in the Bay Area. I don't want someone who's in the Bay Area looking at products because I don't want a product that can only be used in the Bay Area. <laughs> and yet, but that thinking kind of just keeps going that way. And we need Bravo. to challenge and bring pull these things down. Bravo. Hey. Real quick, I mean, this is uh, coming from the audience, coming on Twitter. Uh, this is a question that people ask me to ask you. So what's up with this K-pop interest, Korean pop folks for who don't understand, and all those Michelin star rated Korean food picks? And this question is not coming from Theo. So, but anyways, my point being is, what's going on? What's going down here? So, so I... You I eat well. You eat I, really I, I, well. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be first to be honest, right? The, the first thing is that I don't eat like that every single day. Uh, so uh, some, some meals are simple. Last night, we just, I just threw out oatmeal for the kids. I'm saying, you know what, you're having oatmeal. I'm sorry. Then they're like, they love it. And they're like, this is great. So it's not always that, but just keeping it real. Um, I flip the question and say, why is the rest of the world is into K-pop? They're bigger than the Beatles. Why, where are you guys? Like, I don't get it. And so for what is like trying to understand it. And at first, um, I got into it a long time ago, maybe like early 2000s. And uh, it's been interesting to watch this progression growing up in the UK, uh, you know, Brit pop, pop music, and that kind of went away. And I think a lot of the, the, the <laughs> producers actually went to Korea and started producing Korean. The whole so stock not... Aiken Waterman crew showed up. In <laughs> Korea. <laughs> right. And so it's like it, it continued. And uh, they've just got really good at it. And, and they're amazing marketers. I was just thinking the other day, it's like, I was listening to a Blackpink song and I knew it was Blackpink because one, I know the song, but two, they tell you it's a Blackpink song. Like how many bands actually advertise their name in the song? Like they'll say Blackpink in your area. And you're like, oh, it's a Blackpink song. So it's, uh, awesome. Awesome. it's the geniuses of it. Very cool. All right. Well, we got to cool. run. I want to, people wanted to know we are here with Matthew Holiday, co-founder and SVP of product strategy for Incorda. Check out their database. Pretty wild. His Twitter handle at layered delay, L-A-Y-E-R-E-D-D-E-L-A-Y. Thank you, Matthew, for being on the show and hope to see you soon. Thanks, Thank guys. You, Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Matthew. Terrific. Really smart guy and uh, doing really great work and talking about doing great work and super smart. Our last guest, episode 194, Nicole France, Vice President and Analyst at Constellation Research. Uh, Nicole's research examines the relationship between sales, marketing, customer engagement, out of how to make it more uh, work more effectively. With over 20 years of experience in both technology as a technology analyst and a marketeer, Nicole has a unique perspective on both trends and practicalities of effective customer engagement. You can follow Nicole on Twitter at LN France, L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. Welcome back, Nicole, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much, Fala and Ray. It's great to be on here. And it's also great to be here with, with two friends, you know, Brian and, and Matthew as well. <laughs> yeah. Too bad we all don't get to be on at the same time. That's true. That, that makes, well, we can make that happen. No, just <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so, but hey, no, thank you so much for uh, hopping in. And, uh, you know, we really want to catch up, right? The last time we were catching up, it was pre-pandemic. It was what people call yeah. BC, right? And we're now in the world of AC and what do we do? And, and so the question is, you know, what's happened? What's changed? How's customer experience shifting in that post-pandemic world? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of connections to what both Brian and uh, Matthew were talking about as well. But at a high level, I think 
what is clear is everybody is dealing with totally different circumstances, right? And we're now far enough into this thing, we're past the actual crisis mode where everybody is just trying to scramble to find something that works and to and find enough duct tape to keep everything going, right? Um, and we're now realizing that we're still quite some way away from post-pandemic, right? We're, we're gonna be in this thing for a while and it is strange and it's unusual, but it is persistent. So we have to find some norm for how we operate. And I think that there are really two things that are for certain, right? One is whatever we were doing before the pandemic is not what we're gonna do once it's over. And how we navigate the here and now is going to have a huge influence on whether we're successful when we get to that point where this is over. So um, the thing for me is when we look at customer experience, customer relationships, customer interaction and engagement, all of these parameters on both sides are changing, right? Massive changes with customers, whether we're talking about consumers or a business to business construct or what's happening on the side of the sellers too, right? Like we're, we are all in the situation where we're working from places we might not have expected to be, or even if we are, we're also doing that in Don't a way it. that was not the way it used to be, right? So, so many, many parameters changing. And I think, uh, you know, and Brian touched on this as well. The reality is, and, and Vala, you, know, you were talking about this with your son, there are some very big financial implications here. And we have yet to see the other shoe drop in terms of what the real economic impact is going to be. So a very long-winded way of saying, on one hand, companies of all descriptions are figuring out that they need to interact with their customers differently. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. I think that's a source of a great conversation. But let's face it, digital channels are no longer like the nice adjunct to what you were doing before. <laughs> They're now kind of like it, right? Yeah. For almost all businesses, even businesses that are really used to doing stuff face-to-face. -face. So that's one thing. The other thing is, even if your business is doing unexpectedly well, and let's face it, there are quite a few of them that have faced the challenge of dramatic spikes in growth that they did not anticipate as a result of this scenario, also face the very challenge that we don't really know what to expect over, say, the next six months, one year. So we have to, as businesses, have some real contingency plans in place because it's very difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen. So we are seeing a lot of cuts, a lot of budget cuts, right? In many different places. For some businesses that's been very immediate because they have really felt the sting very quickly and on a very significant scale. So look at travel and hospitality as the obvious ones, right? In other cases, you know, some have had this unexpected spike in demand, some have managed to do pretty well and, and ride the wave um, without massive disruption to their to their business performance. But what's clear is that we don't really know how that's going to change. And so people are either making cuts or planning contingencies for where they can make spending cuts that will give them some greater latitude as they operate. And when we think about that in the context of customer experience, it gets really tricky because nobody wants to kill their customer relationships. Nobody wants to hamper them. I think every business is really focused on maintaining and protecting the customer relationships they have, identifying the new ones or the ones that have growth potential right now, and trying to ensure that they still have the ability to identify where there might be new opportunities that crop up along the way, right? That's a really critical element of not only surviving, but thriving well on the other side. So that, you know, that's got a whole bunch of implications. And a lot of it's coming down to this idea that it's not about the systems, it's not about the tools, it's about how you use them effectively. So how can you make cuts that are going to give you greater financial latitude and flexibility in your business, but not adversely affect all those customer facing things that you do as a business. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's scaling back, that might be scaling back fast and it's has been a whole lot of organizations, but it's also about thinking differently about what you're doing and how you're doing it. So for example, I've been talking to some sales leaders who are saying, look, you know, we suddenly had to go to, um, entirely virtual selling. And luckily we had some of the tools oh, yeah. in place to do that. But what it means is 
the way we think about what our salespeople's jobs are and how we manage them has also had to shift very, very quickly. Yeah. So fewer salespeople, more territories, but a different management style, different communication style, and a different understanding for what that actual sales process looks like with the customer. So that's just one example of the kinds of things that we're seeing. You know, customer service, another great case in point, right? I mean, you know, think about airlines that have had to deal with massive gluts of customers trying to change or cancel tickets. And I think all of us have to some degree been in that scenario. Yeah. I mean, you airlines just could not stop customer service fast enough to actually give the same kind of, of customer support that they might have in any other circumstances. So you can see where there is a real interrelationship between what you need to do in the short term, what you need to do in order to maintain those customer relationships longer term, and how you have to be very, very surgical in the way that you either make cuts or refocus resources or both in order to try to give yourself the best possible opportunities for a good outcome. Yeah, no, it's so many great points. You brought out so many great points. Um, uh, you know, we developed a, a pandemic playbook uh, um, at, at my company, and there's a stabilization, reopening, and growth phase that our scenario planning says could be 18 months to three years long yep. uh, before you can get to the, for, for example, the growth phase. Now, we had uh, some of the most important uh, business leaders of the biggest companies in the world on the show in the last couple of weeks, president of Wipro, chief executive of, of Accenture, and all of both of them agree that we've seen between three to five years of digital and cultural transformation in the last three months. Uh, and, and those two companies combined are 700,000 employee companies, those two. Uh, we also, you know, as we, as we uh, uh, interview uh, our customers, my company, and we do that every two weeks and we post our results on a, on a public Tableau website. Uh, the last report that we did, uh, you know, 70% of the consumer business buyers said that they will continue to use digital commerce for the rest of the year, regardless of, yep. you know, reopening. And that may mean that we've gone from 2019 at 16% of total commerce being digital to I'm predicting over 30% will be digital so we've doubled so that's like 10 years of should we pick up on vala's uh Vala's estimate there yeah no I, 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 well yeah so that's my that's my i'm not a futurist i don't pretend but that, that's that's my that's my that's my uh, prediction. So you were saying going going from 30 percent digital to uh, we, we, you got cut off at the next part uh, uh, sorry uh, going from 16 percent uh, to, to 30. 30 like literally, 30, yeah. literally no, I, doubling I, I, in, in 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 a course of three four months so my question to you, yeah. given the velocity, both speed and direction uh, change, again, these business leaders are telling us five years of transformation in three months. What do what skills do like CX professionals need to have in order to stay relevant, uh, knowing that uh, this is uncharted territory? Like what you know, what experience you had about the past may not be. What's going to help you guide your business to the future? So, what are some of the it's, skills you know, that you it, It's an interesting question, Bob, because I, I do think that actually, um, to be the contrarian here, I think a whole lot of skills that you know CX professionals, let's let's call it, are people whose priority is understanding customers and anticipating their needs. Right? There are some very basic fundamentals that people who have a knack for doing that and people who have responsibility for it have always been good at doing. And I think those things continue and in fact become even more important than they have been before because the, the issue here is not so much that those go away, it's that the, the means that we use to identify and understand the key trends and the channels that we use to communicate effectively with our customers are shifting. And you know, it's not even that they're necessarily new, right? Social media has been a pretty standard thing for about a decade here, right. if not more. Right. That doesn't mean companies are good at using it. And in fact, companies generally are actually pretty bad. Individuals are great, yes. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so this, this is actually one of the really big challenges. And I would argue probably one of the biggest opportunities that companies yeah. have right now. And that's just rethinking and reinterpreting what the qualities and values and characteristics of their business are that they really want to convey through these channels more effectively because right. it's an ad adjunct and to your point about commerce you know 
effectively doubling as a as a proportion of overall sales of any kind you know i think we're past the point where any business can have its commerce you know digital commerce arm be a completely separate part of the business from everything else right, you can't right. operate effectively that way and likewise you can't operate effectively if you think of digital channels or social media um as some like different set of customers or some you know different set of communications there they are very distinct and different and i think we're now at the point where precisely because we have had such a dramatic and very large scale shift in what our everyday lives look like professionally and personally this is the time where we really have a huge opportunity to use those tools finally very effectively because we can we can take what's innately um unique particularly to social media networks and change the way that we communicate as a result of that. And that right. I think is incredibly powerful, right? Right, right. I, I just have a follow-up question because, you know, I, I, I think that um, I see the, the U.S. clearly lags the rest of the world in terms of contactless payments. They do. Uh, we don't, just we don't have transfers, but that's a, you know that's another story. Yeah, yeah you know we, we, we don't have enough <laughs> commerce. Uh, we didn't have enough investment in last mile delivery. We didn't have investments in curbside pickup or electronic order in store pickup. Yeah, I can think there's a number of things that uh, we were laggards before the pandemic, and I would argue our drivers in terms of why there is economic uh, failures in multiple sectors, from a restaurant to a big box store to to, to you name it. So. Is it a failure of CX professionals to have the foresight to know contactless payments is removing friction, so we should invest that regardless of a health pandemic? It just seems like we're lagging as a country when you compare to other, for example, Eastern nations on some real seamless, low friction, digital ways of engaging with our customers. So what makes us think that the same folks that helped us be in a laggard position are going to help us in this now, not a nice to have, but must have business world that we're living now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think you're it's a very good question. I would say it depends on how you define a CX professional because I'd argue that the systemic obstacles that you're talking about there are not the the creation or the byproduct of what people focused on customer experiences and customer relationships are dealing with. You know, we're talking about some some structural issues in finance systems, in clearing systems. Um, you know, in, in the basic technology infrastructure that companies consider core. And, you know, that has a huge impact. And, you know, the, the, there's a real interplay here. I think as companies begin to understand and realize, because there's one thing to know, it's another thing to fully comprehend, right? There's intellectually knowing, and then there's that oh shit moment when you're actually there and you realize it. Um, and I think that's where we are right now. So. We can't solve those problems just by designing customer experiences, right? Mm -hmm. This has to be, this is not a superficial issue. This is fundamentally a business operations issue. And it, it, it is, you know, front to back, top to bottom, everywhere across the way, uh, not just an, an enterprise or a company operates, oh. but really increasingly the way mm -hmm. industries work and some of the standards that allow those things, whether it's supply chains or payments, to actually happen. True. I agree. Well, you just blogged something very interesting, right? You were talking about how people should rethink enterprise software into three elements. Um, talk about those three elements and, and really about why and how that's going to change um, that level of understanding with different kinds of work employees are facing. Yeah, so let me let me start with a little bit of context to how I started thinking about this. You know, one of the things that that strikes me is we in the technology space talk and think a lot about the future of work, right? And it's almost always a very generic conversation. And what I've noticed in my focus on all things customer experience is, you know, there are different pieces of that. There are different jobs, there are different roles, there are different individuals that have responsibility for particular pieces of that. And they have different needs, different contexts, different types of interactions with customers. And ultimately what that means is you know, they're doing different kinds of work, right? Um, and they have different requirements for how they are able to get that work done effectively. So, you know, what a salesperson looks at in the morning and the way that they get their stuff done is not the same as what a customer service agent is doing. And they might be using a lot of similar things, 
but they need them in different ways and different contexts, you know, with a different level of urgency or immediacy, depending on what it is they're trying to do. Just as a couple of really basic examples. What struck me is, you know, we're talking more and more about doing data integration. We, we you know, we want to provide consistent customer experiences. You can't do that if you aren't all using the same data insights consistently, you know, if you don't have systems that are communicating with each other. So there's a clear understanding of what's happened when and where. And there are so many different systems and applications and tools involved. It gets very complicated very quickly to think about what's happening where and what's the best way to do it. And we tend to have a very old school mindset. I mean, this is going back to my earliest days as an analyst looking at your system. We have a very of business applications, you know, it does this, you know, it manages my email or, you know, it's providing me um, a view of who opened what emails and, and how quickly, you know, or I get an update on what bills have been paid and what are still outstanding and how many days outstanding they are, right? This is, this is functionally how we tend to think of business applications. But if we add that to the interfaces that the people using the systems have, mm process and workflows that are actually the sort of interconnections across them, and then the data flows that underpin and provide the lifeblood of that organization. If we think about those three things, I think it becomes a lot easier to understand what we're trying to do. What are the work environments that we're trying to build for different kinds of employees doing different jobs, right? What, what is that workspace? What is that bigger interface? Right? What, what are the things that are in that for what, which systems are responsible for which part of that? And how can we adapt and change them as we need to? And crucially, you know, not just what data elements sit where, but where do they need to go? And, you know, Matthew was talking about this whole challenge of trying to transform data to do any analytics with it. It gets even more challenging when you're trying to automate process flows. Is, and you need to get those data elements from one system you, to another very quickly. Right. So and part you of it don't is want to automate it poorly. Part of it is just getting it done, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. And you don't want to automate it poorly and, and, and repeat it even more quickly, right? And, and, and yeah. no, the, the same shit faster so. is not better. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, we are right. live here right. with Nicole France, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. And you can follow her on Twitter at LN France, all things CX, all things CDP, all things CPQ. And of course, if you need to know more, please follow her on Twitter. So thanks a lot, Nicole. Thank thanks you, for being Nicole. here. Happy Friday. Thank you so much. Oh, gosh, so smart. Look, just, you know, uh, so much to think about. Um, you have to really listen to the conversation because Nicole had so many layers of important concepts to consider. Um, and yeah, you can't trivialize the work that's required to deliver a, an effective um, customer experience. There's so many dimensions to it. Anyway, great show. Uh, I want to uh, just introduce our audience to what we have next week, uh, June 19th, episode 195. We're getting close to, by July, we'll be at episode 200. Alan Marks, Chief Marketing and Communication Officer at ServiceNow, will be our guest. Allison Allen, Executive Vice President, Chief People Officer at the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Uh, Ms. Allen is extraordinary. And Gage Vandertop, uh, Co-Founder at StreamYard. So we're going to talk about the tool we're using. We've been using it for the last uh, six weeks and get insights into where the technology is going with this platform. In addition to next Friday, and as you know, we've done 195 Friday shows. But Ray and I are experimenting with some special shows that are not on Fridays. So uh, next Tuesday, June 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. So a later show for us. We have the Honorable Malcolm Turnbull, 29th Prince, uh, Prime Minister of Australia. Along with uh, Mr. Turnbull, we have Lucy Turnbull, uh, Honorable and Lord Mayor of Sydney. And we have a special guest host, Dr. David Bray, inaugural director of GEO Tech Center, executive director of Commission on the Geopolitical Impact of New Technologies and Data at Atlantic Center, who's going to be our co-host. So three of us, Dr. David Bray, Ray, and ourselves will have the privilege of uh, speaking to Malcolm Turnbull and uh, Lucy Turnbull. That's next Tuesday uh, evening, late afternoon time. We also have a special edition show on uh, July 7th with John Hagel. Uh, management consultant, speaker, author. He led the center at the edge at Deloitte. Uh, you know, one of the top thinkers in terms of customer experience, flow by design principles, and you know how to build uh, a, 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 you know business in a digital economy. 
We also have a special guest uh, show with uh, Vincent Cerf, the inventor of TCP/IP and the chief cloud evangelist at Google. I don't know the date. I know it's in June. Sorry, but anyway, go to our Disrupt TV uh, webpage, and we have all of the shows, including the special shows, listed for you. Ray, your uh, final remarks. <laughs> Well, a lot of people have been commenting on Twitter as how am I broadcasting, so I'm going to share a little bit what's going on here. Um, I've got the mic hooked up to the uh, steering wheel. We've got a little preamp here that's actually powering everything. It's all coming from the computer. And, you know, courtesy of, uh, you know, Verizon MiFi, this thing actually works. So this is pretty <laughs> solid. It's doing its job. And uh, we are live. And, uh, you know, I, I have to be thankful in this age for some awesome technology. I think that technology is uh, allowing us to do things in new ways. This is true mobility. Um, but more importantly, you know, in the context of all the things that are going on in the world, I think it's really important. I mean, we've got a lot going on. Uh, we've coming or in still in a pandemic. We've got some big issues around race. We've got big cultural stuff that's happening. We are under cyber war and cyber attack. Everyone's coming after us. Uh, if you noticed all the different things and, you know, have some hope. You know, we're here to help provide you some hope, some insight, some guidance. We can all move forward. I think help each other, reach out to everyone, see how everyone's doing still, uh, see how people are holding up. Mental health is really useful. It's uh, one of the things that we got to go out and help each other along the way, See, check in, see if people uh, need help, need to talk. Uh, and I think that's going to be an important thing we'll be doing in the next three to four weeks uh, as it only gets crazier. So as we joke, right, how many other movies can we put in all at once? I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I talked about V for Vendetta. It's uh, there's a lot of uh, yeah. There's a combination. The last thing I want to say is, we, Ray and I want to thank you for tuning into Disrupt TV. Over the last four weeks, over the last month, we're averaging fifty-five thousand views of our show. Fifty-five thousand views of our show. The numbers are just staggering for Ray and I. Uh, so um, and it's happening a lot after the show. We're getting thousands watching live. And, uh, you know, we just want to appreciate, we appreciate your, the, the connections. We really, you know, we can't, this show doesn't exist without you guys. So, so really just want to thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, and thank you. And, and at some point, we're going to look for some founding sponsors and underwriters. Uh, if you're interested, let us know. Just reach out to us to directly. We'll probably take a limited number. Uh, we really want to improve the show, get to more guests, uh, add some staff, and uh, would really love to continue sharing all this with everyone. So thank you. If it's Friday. It's Disrupt TV. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye.